Now I've been asked to uh, explain again the deposit. I'm sorry if I didn't get it quite right. So I didn't explain it clearly enough yesterday. Apologies for that. I've also been asked to try and explain it a bit more slowly. And so I will try to do that. I'm sorry. I, I talked to my wife. She's been trying to slow me down for 40 years and it still hasn't worked. Actually, she has two little cards, quite big cards, which she sometimes holds up at the back of church. One says, slow down, and the other says, stop. (laughs) And neither of them work. (laughs) The deposit. Basically, the word is my deposit, which comes in three different verses, in 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy. And the context determines that what it really means, what my deposit is, is what he has entrusted to me. Not what I've deposited with him, but what he has deposited to me. He has entrusted to me. That's the context determines that. What is it? Well, of course, it is the gospel. God has entrusted the gospel to us. And these three verses say basically the same thing. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20 says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 14 says, Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. And so we also conclude that 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, this is the controversial one because the CSSM chorus puts it around the other way and some versions of the Bible put it around the other way, should in fact say, I'm convinced that he is able to guard that which he has entrusted to me. In other words, it's all about the gospel. Paul is convinced that as well as entrusting uh, the gospel to us, to God, God by his Holy Spirit will also guard it. The challenge, of course, is how do we guard it? We do that by passing it on faithfully and accurately. So let's come then into chapter 2. There's a lot more in chapter 1. I could have uh, talked about it. In fact, as Janet was reading chapter 2, I realised there's an awful lot in chapter 2 that I'm not going to talk about as well. It's so full, so rich, this particular letter. But I left a question up in the air with you last night. Um, Timothy's encouraged to fan into flame the gift of God. Why might that flame go out? Why has he got to make sure that the flame stays alive. Well, an important theme of that chapter 1, which continues right through the book, is that of continuity. Finish the race, is the title I gave for this morning. Don't drop the baton. Make sure that you keep going right to the very end. Hold the baton firm while you are holding it, and pass on that baton accurately and decisively to the next generation so they can continue to run with the baton. That truth entrusted to us, the gospel first revealed to the apostles, Paul appointed as a herald and teacher of the gospel, Paul appoints Timothy to take the baton on, to keep what you've learned from me, to continue in what you have heard and who you heard it from, that comes up again in chapter 3, just after coffee, Teach it to faithful men that they will teach it also. You see the idea of continuity. There's got to be an unbroken chain of the true gospel being passed on from one generation to the other. That, as I said yesterday, is the true apostolic succession. Why then might that be hard? And why might the flame go out? Why might Timothy be tempted to give up and to turn away? Well, the heart of this comes in the middle of this chapter, as Paul has already pointed to it in chapter 
uh, chapter 1 uh, and verse 12 becomes important again here because not only has he said what I've just pointed to about uh, the, the gospel being trusted to him but he says at the beginning of verse 12 of chapter 1 that is why I'm suffering it's because of the gospel it's because I was appointed to this gospel that I'm suffering if I had another gospel I wouldn't be suffering but it's because I've been appointed to this gospel and that is why God will guard it because his hands are safer than mine but mine are the hands into which God has put that gospel every Christian can say that Paul is saying that to Timothy and we can say the same thing God's hands are much more secure than ours but ours are the hands he's put into which he's put the gospel Ours are the ones to which he's entrusted. And as I also said yesterday, if you're still alive, you have some part to play in that work of passing on the gospel to others. So Paul, as a prisoner, says to Timothy, join me in suffering. Now, I don't think they told me that at Oak Hill. (laughs) I I remember being told at Oak Hill that I would be poor. In fact, my mother-in-law told me that when we first got it. When we first got engaged, I was a chartered accountant and, and, my, and Judy's mother said, oh, you'll always be well off because you're marrying a chartered accountant. And then a few months later, I said, I really feel the Lord is calling me into the ministry and Judy's mother said, you'll never be well off if you're marrying a minister. <laughs> now, they warned us about that. And, of course, you know the story of the, uh, the induction uh, when the, um, uh, the church warden, uh, the induction of a new vicar, the church warden says to the archdeacon, you keep him poor and we'll keep him humble. But they didn't warn us about the suffering. It took me 15 years to realise I was not God's gift to the Church of England. <laughs> and when opposition comes along, you see, your first question is, what have I done wrong? Well, you may have got it right. Opposition may mean that you're actually on the right track. Not that you've got it wrong. I told you about the secretary of the PCC who considered the atonement was barbaric. I will never allow someone to die for me, he said. That was the secretary of my PCC in Leamington. But you see, when opposition comes, it is usually very personal, isn't it? And it hurts. It hurts. I, as a result of my, uh, as I said, it took me 15 years to realise I was not God's gift to the Church of England. The Proclamation Trust was very largely responsible for helping me to come to see really what preaching is all about. It's great to have David with us, with us because he was one of the ones very largely responsible for that. And I owe my, my thrill of preaching to, to, the, to the, the material I've got to preach, but to Dick Lucas and, and David and people like that who helped me with that. But you see, somebody said to me quite soon after that, you were very arrogant in your preaching. I don't like your arrogance. How can you be confident without being arrogant? It's very difficult. And when you're told you're arrogant, it hurts, doesn't it? We had a lovely couple with a lovely family, key leaders in our church at Leamington, and the wife came to me one day and she said, we're actually going to go to a church in Warwick because, you see, we've always been used to good preaching. I, I think that reduced me to tears, actually, at the time, I remember. Is that right? I found that very painful. And then in, uh, in, uh, in, Leamington, in, in, in Westbourne here, uh, somebody said, we're going off to a different church because you don't preach Christ. I was startled by that. Very startled. But then I remembered that Paul said, to keep me from being conceited, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, or as we would say, pain in the neck. Well, I think I've had my fair share of pains in the neck. But you see, in chapter 2, Paul brings Timothy to the heart of it. Look at verse 7. He says, think. I'm glad the uh, the NLT says think. Think 
about what I'm saying and God will give you insight. You see, the two things go hard to, to hand by hand. There's hard work and then there's a the spiritual insight and they go together. You can't miss one of them out. Most congregations have absolutely no idea how long it takes to prepare a sermon. I remember somebody saying to me about a dear friend of mine who was at Maidenhead at the time. I don't think he's still there now. But, um, uh, oh no, it was he who told me that a lady in his congregation said to him, you don't believe in the Holy Spirit. And he said, I, I, but I do believe in the Holy Spirit. No, you don't, she said. The day I know you believe in the Holy Spirit is the day you go into the pulpit without any notes. <laughs> now you see, as far as she was concerned, the Holy Spirit was inactive in the study, but very active in the pulpit. I spend longer with the Holy Spirit in the study than I probably do with, uh, in the pulpit. But the two go together. Think, hard work, and spiritual insight. And so it goes on in verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. Jesus warned the disciples, you'll be hated because of me. That's Jesus' words. That's just, just not theological college Advice, you will be hated because of me. We actually wish those words weren't there, don't we? We don't really want that. We like to be popular. But Jesus has warned us. But the very way he paid for the gospel was a way of suffering. He was descended from David, raised from the dead. This is not just remember Jesus. It's not just a a sort of inspiration to lift your eyes when you're in the thick of it and draw strength from Jesus. That is perfectly true, but that's not what this verse is saying. Paul reminds Timothy that the suffering is at the very heart of the gospel. We we serve a suffering saviour. A saviour who descended. A saviour who was crucified, dead and buried. It was from the dead he was raised. Glorious saviour was raised from the dead. His path to David's throne was a descent. His humble birth, his lowly life, his suffering, his death. Indeed the path to glory for Jesus is through suffering. Jesus himself says on Easter Day. The Son of Man had to suffer. It was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer these things and then enter his glory. So in verse 9, Paul seems to almost spell out two alternatives. This is the gospel, my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal, but God's word is not chained. I am chained, but the word is not. He is chained, but the word is free. Now you see, if we chain the word... If we restrict the word, if we make the word more acceptable, then we are free from suffering. If we preach a popular gospel, we are free from suffering, but we chain the word. So it's almost as if this verse gives us two alternatives. Either I'm chained and the word is free, or I'm free and the word is chained. You take a choice. And there doesn't seem to be a middle road. You see, the true gospel humbles the the sinner and exalts the saviour. Now, you see that slip of the tongue which I nearly said, which is a Freudian slip, because we prefer actually to humble the saviour and exalt the sinner, don't we? We don't like being humble. We prefer to exalt ourselves. The false gospel exalts the sinner because it gives the sinner's weight to the sinner's efforts, to the sinner's work, to the sinner's ideas, to the sinner's rituals. All of these things we can do. It makes us feel much better. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is chained. Because if we go down that road, the cross is robbed of its power. The power to save. 
So the choice seems to be in this verse, and we don't really like it, but it seems to be a straightforward choice with no middle road. Either you suffer for the gospel or you abandon the gospel. Not all the time, and not every, every instance, but in broad terms. And Paul underlines that with the hymn, which I think we probably is a hymn he's quoting, from verses 11 to 13. The fever which is suffering now, but glory to come. Being faithful to the gospel now with, uh, will lead to glory. But in the meantime, it will involve cost. Firstly, remaining true to the gospel, going from death to life, and from enduring to reigning. But then in the second part of the hymn, the possibility of failure, couched in terms of a strong warning, but to be taken seriously, as indeed are the three warnings in Hebrews. If we change the gospel, God will disown us. If we change the gospel, if we preach another gospel, it is almost as if God is saying, well, I don't know whose gospel you think you're preaching, but it's certainly not mine. There is no other gospel other than the gospel of a suffering saviour. You see, God cannot accommodate himself to our truth. Our idea of truth. God doesn't say, oh, that's a nice idea, I'll fit in with that. No, God, God has established the truth of the gospel through the revelation of Christ. And we have no right or, or, or privilege to be able to change that. And so to encourage Timothy to keep going and to finish the race, uh, Paul challenges him with six metaphors of the faithful servant. And if you do have your notes, you'll see the six of them listed out there. First of all, the soldier not distracted uh, in verses 3 and 4. No one serving, endure hardship like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian um, affairs. The word hardship is a strange word here, because once again it's a word that Paul never ever uses anywhere else in the New Testament. It's one of those complex words the Greeks like to, rather like the Germans, take two or three words and put them all together. And this word endure hardship is literally suffer bad things in company with someone else. That's just one word in the Greek. It's the only place where Paul uses it, and he's talking to a young pastor at the beginning of his ministry. Isn't that interesting? The only time he uses that particular word. Suffer bad things in company with someone else. They used to say, join the army and see the world. Well, I've seen the world. Can I get out now? No, you can't. There's a war on. You're in the army, and there's a war on. And your aim is to please the commander. And to do that, it means maybe giving up what pleases you. I came across this piece of paper. If you'll pardon me, I'm going to read it to you. It's written in 1981 at Fairmar Court at the Proclamation Trust Conference. Now, that's nearly 30 years ago. And I was quite startled to read this today. This is what I wrote 30 years ago. There's a war on. We can't do all that we would like to do. We need priorities. Things that take up so much time must be laid aside. Not necessarily, I wasn't giving a talk by the way, I was taking notes, I, I'm, I didn't give talks in those days. Not necessarily evil things, but, pos- but um, pastimes that sap our time and our er- energy. What is my first priority? Am I to become an expert on model railways or on preaching the word? I wrote that 30 years ago. Well, I still have a model railway. <laughs> But I do spend more time preaching the word. In fact, it's, it's nearly 12 months since I actually went into the sanctuary, which is my model railway, so there's another story. So, you see, we have to give up things. that Well, nothing wrong with them, but our first priority. 
is to please our commander. Soldier, not distracted. Then the athlete, well disciplined. Verse 5, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. Now, this, there could be lots of analogies relating to the athlete regarding Christian service. Paul uses self-discipline and training in 1 Corinthians. But I think what here the point is, uh, competing according to the rules. In other words, you're not crowned if you cheat. Now, drugs is the first thing that comes to mind in terms of athletics today. Uh, But uh, competing according to the rules would seem to relate to the discipline of the event you're in. If you run outside the lane, even if you hold on to the baton, you're not going to win the winner. You'll have the the, the winner's crown will be taken away from you. And clearly, if you drop the baton... So this is perhaps a reminder to Timothy and to all pastor teachers only to teach the truth. You cannot finish the race with any old baton in your hand. It's got to be the baton of the gospel of Christ, which was handed to you by previous generations who had that handed to them by, ultimately, the apostles and the teaching of Jesus. Our task is to hold it firmly, not to drop it, and to pass it on accurately. That's what the athlete has to do. Then there's a farmer well rewarded. Verse 6, a hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Hard work or no results seems to be the choice here. A slacking farmer will not get good results. And interestingly, the results are actually not basically to do with what the farmer's doing. The farmer gets on with his work, but actually only God can make the crops grow. Only God can produce um, the fruit from the, what he, the farmer buries in the ground. The farmer has a lot of hard work to do, but the paradox is still the same. No hard work, no results. But even so, the results will bring glory to God because he alone is the one who produces. So these first three illustrations speak of priorities, of discipline and endurance. There's no room for the part-timer, for the cheat or for the slacker. This is Paul's message to Timothy. And then the familiar verse, we have workmen not ashamed, verses 14 to 18. Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. Now you'd be glad to know I'm not going to criticise the Crusader Chorus on this verse. Sorry if that's going to disappoint you, but no, the chorus is perfectly right. Study to show yourself approved under God, a workman needing not to be ashamed. Uh, And it's a mistake to think that this is only for preachers. This is for all Christians. Peter says to all of us, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you. I hope you're not like me in this respect, because I can always think of the right answer about half an hour later usually happens when I've come out of the hairdressers and we've had quite a good conversation with the barber and, and I think when I get on my way home what I should have said to him why didn't you say that at the time it, actually er I don't know is not a, a right answer for the reason that the hope that's within us is it it's our job to find out what that right answer is on, to know the gospel the word correctly handled means it's got to be read every day it's got to be studied Study to show yourself. Work hard to be show yourself a workman who's, who's approved. It's got to be learned. You need to learn some verses if you're going to have a ready answer to give to people who question us. We've got to think about it. It's got to be remembered. If we don't remember the word, we won't be ready 
to give an answer. All these included, I think, in this one word, study, which literally means speed. The original word there is, is speed. Do your best is actually a little bit tame. It requires energy. It requires enthusiasm. Paul in Colossians 1 says, For this I strive with all the energy God powerfully energizes within me. And three times in the one verse, he uses his word for energy and drive and enthusiasm. That's what God is looking for in terms of studying his word and being so gripped by the word. And the hard work is seen in the light of the following verses, which speak of quarrelling, of godless chattering, of wandering away, of stupid arguments, more quarrelling, and all this in one chapter. No wonder it takes hard work to know the scriptures and to be a workman not ashamed. Literally, to be a workman not bringing dishonour on yourself. You see, what the workman wants to hear at the end of time I'm talking of the Christian workmen now, not just the pastor, but all Christians. What we long to hear is, isn't it, well done, good and faithful servant. What we do not want to hear is one of the first words of God to man, to Adam and Eve, when you go back to Genesis 3. I always feel when God speaks to Eve that the way he's saying it is something like this. Eve, what have you done? What do you, you've no idea what you have unraveled by what, what have you done now we do not want to hear God saying to us what have you done with that gospel I gave you the faithful gospel to hold firmly and pass it on not just what have you done with it what have you done because if the gospel is changed just think of the damage that can do and verse 15 says present yourself to God His approval is what matters. It's that well done, good and faithful servant is what really matters. And correctly handled literally means cutting a straight path. And and the image of Roman roads immediately springs to mind because the Romans didn't care what hills were in the way. The road just went straight, straight, didn't it? That's where we're going, so that's where the road's going. And that's what's got to happen for the word. A straight path for not diverted to one side or another. Unlike Hymenaeus and Philetus who had what done they'd done? They'd taken a byway. They'd wandered off the road. They give, they give an example, one example of the word wrongly handed. Now, I could spend ages on the resurrection is past already. I'm not going to actually develop that. But it, it, we can see something of the other side of that now. Because if the resurrection is past, some people reckon then all sickness is a sign of unbelief and nobody should be sick. And amazingly, there are still people who believe that inside our churches that no one should ever be sick because you simply got to pray and, and God will heal. I remember, you've heard a lot about Lemington today, but I remember a lady speaking to me in Lemington who said at the end of a service after I preached on Romans 8, she said, I have the resurrection body. I said, yes, it'll be great when we do have it. And I said, and she said, no, no, I've got it now. I have the resurrection body. Now! I tried to, but she, wasn't, she was on transmit, she wasn't unreceived, so I didn't really get very far in trying to correct her, but I don't, I don't tell the end of the story with any, with any delight at all, but many, many years later, I met her in, in Westbourne, the back of the church. I didn't recognize her. She was so ill. She was so frail. I really didn't recognize her. She said to me, do you remember me? And she told me her name. And then I did remember. And I remembered what she'd said. I have the resurrection body. And I thought to myself, Anne, you certainly don't. Your body is nearing the time when you will actually meet the Lord. Then you'll have the resurrection body. The resurrection is not passed in that respect. 
And of course, as these verses remind us, it ruins the hearers, uh, the growth into ungodliness, because if the resurrection is past, it doesn't matter what you do. You can sin as much as you like, because it's all over and done with. And it destroys faith. That's work badly done. No, we're to work well done. And that sin uh, getting into the church leads us on to the fifth uh, picture, which is of the instrument well used. In other words, a tool in good working order. Now, I don't believe the tool is scripture now. I think the tool is the Christian. This is the tool that the master, the Lord himself, wants to use, and he wants to use clean tools. He wants to use tools in good working order because they are correctly handling. Now, we recognise that if God only used perfect people, his workforce is going to be very thin. In fact, he will not find anybody on this earth who can be his workforce if he only uses perfect people. But nevertheless, he still wants clean vessels that are clean and meet for his use. Clean from these, it says in verse 21. The false teaching has led to ungodliness, which is affecting the church like a flu virus. It's spreading through the church. And that's what he's to be clean from. We fool ourselves. If we think a God will use us when we're mucking about with immoral behavior or immoral relationships or any sort of activity which is not in accordance with his standards, God is able to use us, but we fool ourselves if we think that the lives we lead doesn't make any difference. And God will just say, well, don't worry about it, and I know you're frail. Persistent, unrepentant sin does not bring glory to God. Only the Saviour can cleanse the sin in our hearts, but we are charged with cleansing the sin in our lives. Only the Saviour can forgive the sin in our hearts, but we are charged with removing the sin from our hands. To be clean, that the master may use us. However skillful the joiner is, if the blade is not sharp, he'll be hampered in his work. However skillful the chef is, if the pots and pans are dirty, then he will not be able to provide wholesome food. So Paul challenges the young Timothy to clean out the cupboard so that he offers the heart, Lord a pure heart for his use. And I've written in my notes here for myself, if not for you, let him that is without sin cast the first stone. It's a reminder to all of us. So from an instrument well used, we come then to the servant well prepared. Here I like to think is, is the uniform that the master wants his servants to wear. If you like to think of a chauffeur with his chauffeur's hat and his chauffeur's uniform, this is the uniform God wants his servants to wear. Holiness, verse 22. Temptations don't just go away. Look at verse 22. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith and love. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and again I can hear Dick Lucas saying this. Flee, follow, fight. Flee the, the temptations of sin. Follow the way of the Lord and fight against the devil and fight against the opposition to the gospel. We have, some, we have some work to do. God has called us to holiness. He's called us, as we saw in chapter 1, not to a cosy life, but to a holy life. That's the first piece of uniform. Then discernment, verse 23. I was saying to somebody only just this last week, never make a battle out of a secondary issue. As I was sharing with somebody who I've been asked to take on, uh, come out of retirement and take on two churches for about nine or ten months until the new vicar appointed. 
and one of them wears robes and the other doesn't. Well, I haven't worn robes for 20 years, but I reckon robes is a secondary issue, and I won't like it, but I will wear robes at the church, which does wear robes, because that's not worth making a fight over that. There are other things I have got to fight about, but not robes. So, although it's not my choosing, um, I, will, uh, I will give in to that one. The devil loves to see Christians falling out, doesn't he? If the devil, these two churches don't get on together because they're totally different that I've got to look after. And if the devil can set them at each other, oh, he'd love that. He'd love that. If the devil can get Christians fighting and arguing amongst themselves, discernment as to the, the, the causes to follow. And with graciousness, verse 24, being kind to all, especially the ones you don't like. Especially the ones you don't get on with. Being kind to all. Not resentful. You see, you won't always get your own way. You won't always get your own. You'll have to give in at some points. And above all, to teach, apt to teach. God's word decides the way to move forward. So with, with God's word as our guide, and as a marker, to be able to teach that in graciousness, but with conviction. That humble conviction of verse 25, um, the... Um, the last of, the, of the, the garments that God wants his servants to wear. Not compromising the truth, but not hitting them over the head with the truth. Humble conviction and gracious firmness in teaching. And the aim of all this, well, in no surprise to find the aim is evangelism. Look at verse 25. God will grant them repentance. And in verse 6, will bring them to faith to uh, escape the trap of the devil who's taken them captive, bring them to a knowledge of the truth. So repentance and faith is clearly the aim of all this, the gospel, bringing people to know and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is clear in all these six visual aids, that the Lord himself is the key. He is the commanding officer. He is the one who gives out the prizes to the athletes. He is the owner of the farm and the owner of the crops. He is the superior whose approval the workman seeks. He is a householder who wants to use the instrument that should be clean. And he is the master who gives orders to the servants. And over all that, his is the work that he calls us to engage with. Helping men and women to be saved, to be rescued from the snare of the devil who's captured them. Come to their senses, an interesting phrase in verse 26. It literally means give up being drunk. Stop being intoxicated by the lure and appeal of sin. Think sensibly about the freedom in Christ that comes because of the cross. This is the aim that Christ wants all his servants to be involved in one way or another. Whether we're in leadership or not, we're all part of that uh, army of those he calls to serve him and to be of use to him. The pastoral epistle is often seen as church instruction, and so often the way it's put across, but the passion that drives Paul, of course, is the gospel in both 1 and 2 Timothy, bringing men and women from death to life by faith in Christ crucified. And as we too hand over the baton to the next generation, the same passion must drive us too so necessary that people who do not know Christ discover and realize the danger they're in and it's often the first step to to faith in Christ to discover they are in a position of danger. And I believe it's this that holds the whole chapter together and the clue for that is given in verse 19 
with which I want to finish as we look at this verse. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness or evil. Now the background to this verse is Numbers chapter 16. Don't need to turn to it. I'm not going to go through it in detail. It's a story of Korah and the Levites plus 250 men who didn't like Moses and opposed him who virtually said to Moses, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to set yourself up against us and to lead us in this way? Why should we we follow your word? Why should we do what you say? They were challenging Moses' leadership and of course God's choice of the priests and who should be priest. So God, Moses says, God knows the ones he has chosen. So you choose for yourself. Either you stand with them, or you stand with us, as he says to all the people. And what happened was the people moved away from the tents of Korah and his associates, and there was an earthquake, and the ground opened up, and all the rebels were swallowed in this enormous earthquake. Now we have Hymenaeus and Philetus and others with their teaching are challenging the apostolic authority, effectively saying to Paul, who do you think you are to set yourself above us? Why should we follow your way? With results that could affect the whole church if it spreads, as I've already said, like a flu virus. Spread right through the church and suddenly there are no believers at all. Paul sees the parallels with the threat to God's own people as with Chorus. So once again he says, choose. God knows who are his people. And you show that you know that too by distancing yourself from wickedness, literally from unrighteousness. Now this could be moral wickedness. The context here probably leans towards it being the sense of wickedness, of false teaching, of teaching lies about God, which are then going to lead other people into sin. And so Paul here says... um, Uh, turn away from them. And literally, he says, stand away from them. Interestingly, in verse 15, where he's encouraging Timothy to study to show yourself approved unto God, to present yourself, study to stand alongside God, is what he means there. To stand next to God as someone who's faithfully served God. Now he's saying to the people who are um, opposed to God's truth, to stand away from them. And the word literally and transliterated is apostasy to stand away from and that's our word apostasy which has directly come from the Greek word here in this particular verse and with the echo of Moses' story Paul calls believers and leaders and members alike to stand clear of false teachers back away from them don't listen to them because God knows and what will God do? Just as it is in the time of Korah, he will bless his people and he will judge those who are against him in a pretty dramatic way in number 16 with an earthquake. But Paul, I'm sure, has that in mind. Stand clear of those people lest you find the judgments falling on you too. Because when God, God will vindicate his own, but he will judge his truth, judge his opponents of his truth. He will judge his enemies. God knows. And so when you see people who are not teaching the truth, back away. Apostatize from them. Stand clear of them. We've seen seen here then the seen and the unseen. The Lord knows the heart. 
The world can see the life. Truth and holiness are going side by side, aren't they? God knows the truth. God knows the truth of our hearts. The world can see the holiness or lack of it in our lives. And they must marry together. That's consistent with all six of the illustrations we've looked at. And the solid foundation which, um, uh, which we are given, which we are sealed with, a seal speaks of security. When we have come to God's truth, that we are secure. A seal speaks of ownership. We belong to God who has revealed the truth. A seal speaks of authenticity. We belong genuinely to the only God with the only truth. The Holy Spirit is often described as God's seal. Did you know that the, the word in 2, 2 Corinthians 5, which describes the Holy Spirit, translated in 2 Corinthians 5 as, I'm going to use the same word again, deposit. It's not the same word this time, so beware, it still means deposit. But in 2 Corinthians 5 it says, a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Did you know that the word that is used there in 2 Corinthians 5 is the same word as an engagement ring? That's what the Holy Spirit is. Just think about it. A deposit guaranteeing what's to come. It's, it's a gift signifying a promise. Isn't that what an engagement ring is? A gift signifying a promise which will in future be fulfilled. So the Holy Spirit is the gift and the future is the great wedding feast, isn't it? On the great day when the promise is seen to have been fulfilled. It's an assurance to us that the work of Christ is complete and the Holy Spirit is given to us as a arabona, which is the Greek word. A, an engagement ring, a deposit, guaranteeing what's to come. So our challenge for us is to live our lives in such a way that that is seen in, in the outwardness of our lives. People can't see the inwardness of our hearts, and that's probably an incredibly good thing. But they can see our lives. They cannot see Christ, but they can see us. And that's the nearest they're going to get to seeing Christ. And they need to see our lives. Is it any wonder that Paul starts this whole passage off by saying, be strong in the grace that is in Christ. Finish the race.